Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be continuing in our study of Romans chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 7 and 8 of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. continuing our journey through the book of Romans. Today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. So you can turn there in your Bibles. We'll be looking at uh, verses 7 through 13 over the next couple of studies. With today's study, we're entering a section of scripture that's a bit difficult and controversial, but fascinating in my opinion. This difficult section goes from verse 7 until the end of the chapter, and we'll cover this section over the next few studies. One reason that this is a difficult passage is that it speaks of human psychology, really, inner feelings, inner motivations, the struggle between different parts of our psyche. The reason that I think it's controversial is that among scholars, there's a wide variety of interpretations of certain verses, even to the point where many scholars can't even come to an agreement about who is speaking here in this passage. I think that this particular quote-unquote controversy is a bit silly, because in this passage, Paul uses the words I and me. And so I think it's a bit obvious who's speaking. It's Paul himself. Otherwise, why would he use the words I and me? Who else could he be possibly referring to except himself? Paul's a human being. Paul is writing this book. When human beings speak uh, about their thoughts and opinions, they use the words I and me. So Paul must be speaking about himself here. And yet, many scholars, many fine scholars, and many scholars even who believe in the truth and inspiration of the Bible, even some of them say that Paul is not speaking about himself. And, and that's a bit silly in my opinion. I'm a simple man, and, and I have this simple theory that the Bible actually means what it says. So if there are words written in black and white on the page of the Bible, and these words have a standard, unambiguous meaning if they were written on the page of any other book, well, then they probably have that same meaning if they're written in this book. And in a work of nonfiction, if the author of any other book uses the words I and me, then we conclude that he or she is speaking about him or herself. We don't argue about it or even think much about it. We just all agree that that's the case because that's the simple meaning of the words on the page. So here, if Paul, the author of this nonfiction book, if Paul says, I did this and then I thought that, well, then I think uh, we have to conclude naturally that he's speaking of his own thoughts and actions. That's the simple meaning of the words which are in black and white on the page. I'm a simple man, and I have this simple belief, as I said, that the Bible means what it says. I'm silly that way, I guess. So then, if I'm reading a scholar's interpretation of a passage in the Bible, or if I'm listening to a pastor or teacher speaking about a passage in the Bible, and if I hear them say, well, this passage doesn't really mean what it says, well then, red flags go up in my mind. A red alert goes off in my mind. And this red alert tells me that this scholar or pastor or teacher better have a darn good reason why they're saying that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. As I said, I'm a simple man. 
And I have this theory that the Bible actually means what it says and says what it means. That means if, if we come across a passage in the Bible that's difficult in the sense that we don't like what it says, rather than try to reinterpret the words on the page and argue that the Bible doesn't mean what it says, I think it's a much better endeavor to actually come to grips with what the Bible is actually saying. I'm simple that way. So with that rather long introduction, let's get to it. The main difficulty in this passage has to do with the relationship between the law and sin, and how, even though the law is holy, righteous, and good, as Paul says in the passage, in the psychology of sinful humans, knowledge of the law can actually induce a sinful person to sin. And that's a bit of a difficult concept to grasp. So let's see if we can make sense of all this. Let's start by reading today's passage, and then we'll dig into it. Let's read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. Here's what Paul wrote. Quote, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful." Unquote. Here's a quick outline of what we'll be looking at today. First, we'll look at the different interpretations of Paul speaking in the first person in these verses. Next, we'll look at the structure and theme of the entire passage from verses 7 through 13, the theme of which is the relationship between the law and sin. Next, we'll dig into the passage and look at the first two items concerning the law and sin in this passage. First, in verse 7, it speaks of how the law educates us about sin. And in verse 8, it actually speaks of how sin increases in the presence of the law. So that's what we'll look at today. So let's get to it. Certainly, it's obvious to anyone reading the text that Paul is speaking in the first person here. And so the natural conclusion that one would draw is that he is speaking from his own personal experience. And given that that's the plain meaning of the words on the page, then I think we need to conclude that that's the case. Paul is giving us insight into the struggle that he has had with respect to the law and sin. But then there are scholars who say, no, no, Paul's not speaking of himself. He's speaking representatively of every human being. And that's quite an interesting theory. And to that I would answer, why can't it be both? 
You see, this is the problem with much of the scholarly writing in general, and especially about this passage. And that is that the scholars try to pigeonhole the meaning of a passage into one isolated box without leaving open the possibility that the Holy Spirit has constructed a passage to have several levels of meaning. The Holy Spirit, specifically here, has constructed this passage to reflect several aspects of our struggle concerning the law and sin. And we can explore each of these aspects and gain insight into the law and sin and living as a human being by exploring each and every one of these levels of meaning. We do the same thing when we study literature in English class. For example, the book Moby Dick, at its most basic level, is a story about a man chasing a white whale and trying to kill it. But it's written skillfully such that one can't help but notice there is more to the book than that, and that it has several levels of meaning. So yeah, the book is about chasing a white whale, but it's also about obsession in general, and also revenge. And it's about man versus nature, and how small we are in this vast creation. And then, on another level, if you look at the crew members on the ship, it's about various cultures striving to live together and get along, and so it reflects society in that way. And it's also about how our destinies are many times tied to the decisions of others. The crew members were stuck on this ship that Ahab was leading to its doom and destruction. And so there's multiple levels of meaning in that book, which are all worth studying. And this is the case because the book is written well. It's great writing. And certainly, if you study the Bible, you find that it too is great writing. Uh, you know, so if we can study the book Moby Dick and all of the levels of meaning in that work of literature, certainly we can do the same here in Romans chapter 7. We don't have to pigeonhole the passage into just one interpretation, but we can gain insight by looking at the passage in all of its depth. Given that, here are some interpretations of this passage that I found when reading the writings of biblical scholars. And rather than insisting that the passage must only fit into just one of these interpretations, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Holy Spirit is a genius and quite possibly wants us to gain insight by looking at this passage in all of its levels of meaning. So here are the various interpretations of the passage, which I view not as contradictory, but as supplementary to each other. I see this passage as having these different levels of meaning supplementing each other to create a passage of incredible depth. So here they are. First, at its most basic level, Paul is speaking about himself and his own experience. And certainly, this is the primary meaning of this passage. Paul does this amazing thing in verse 7, and he starts using the first person. He starts saying, I did this, and I did that, and my this, and my that. And so it's clear, at its most basic and straightforward level, this passage is speaking about Paul's personal experience. But second, at another level, and I'm sure Paul meant to do this, Paul is speaking representatively about the general human experience. This is certainly true, because as we read this, especially ne next uh, week when we study the passage after verse 14, we read this and say, 
Oh yeah, I've experienced that, and I also have that struggle, and I also had that realization. Given this, at the second level, we can read this and discuss how we ourselves have also experienced these things. But then beyond this, because this is such great writing, we can draw parallels in what Paul is saying to other things, and we can gain insight into the human condition by looking at deeper levels of this passage. For instance, another level of meaning that some scholars have noted is that Paul could be speaking as a representative of the history of Israel, where the children of Israel didn't originally have the law, and then they received the law, and that changed their existence and their view of things. And so this passage can also be looked at in that way. And finally, one last level of meaning is that Paul could be speaking in terms of the history of humanity itself. And more specifically, he could be speaking about the experience of Adam and Eve and how they were fine before they received the commandment, but the receipt of the commandment changed things and opened them up to temptation. And that, in my opinion, is a fascinating way to read this passage. And we can get insight into what was going on in the Garden of Eden when you read the passage in this way. So let's look at this passage from these various levels of meaning and see what we find. As I said, first and primary, Paul is speaking about himself and about his moral development as he lived his life. We know that he's speaking about himself because, as I have said, he starts writing in the first person in verse 7. He starts saying, I did this and I thought this, etc., etc. And this is quite a shift uh, for Paul in this because, as we've talked about, Romans in general is about Paul laying out the fundamentals of the Christian religion. And up to this point, things have been all theoretical rather than personal. Up to this point, except for the greeting to the Romans at the beginning of the book, Paul hasn't used the words I and me and my. Paul hasn't been speaking at all of any, anything personal. And yet here, though he is still teaching us about the fundamental concepts concerning the Christian view of the world, he chooses to teach us these concepts by describing his personal experience. He relates his personal evolution of thought concerning these things. And then a bit later in chapter 7, he even relates his personal moral struggles as he strives to live the Christian life while stuck in this human body. Paul's choice to teach us these things by speaking in the first person, this is quite valuable, I think, to us as readers, because he's relating thoughts, experiences, and struggles that we ourselves face. So if we see that Paul is experiencing struggles with the law and sin as he tries to live the Christian life, we learn that our own struggles with these things aren't so odd. We learn that we aren't failures if as Christians if we struggle with these things. Because we see here that Paul, one of the great heroes of our faith, we see that Paul has struggled with the same things. And Paul brings that all home by using the first person in this passage, by saying, I did this, and I thought that, and this happened to me. Given this, it's an extremely valuable passage, especially because it's speaking of a very difficult subject and very difficult concepts. 
As I've mentioned, Paul here is primarily speaking of the relationship between the law and sin. And specifically, Paul in this passage talks about four ways in which the law and sin are related. First, the law educates us about sin. He speaks about that in verse 7. Second, sin increases in the presence of the law. Paul talks about this in verse 8. Third, knowledge and understanding of the law teaches us that we are in a state of death under the law. That's discussed in verses 9 through 11. Fourth, the law teaches us about the utter horror of sin and teaches us exactly how terrible sin is. And we find this in verses 12 and 13. So those are the lessons in this passage about the law and its relationship to sin. Let's begin looking at these things. First, Paul teaches us that the law educates us about what sin is. Here's what he says in verse 7. And again, he's speaking about, about his own personal experience as he here starts speaking in the first person. He says this, quote, Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet, unquote. The law teaches us in a clear and unambiguous manner, as it is written in black and white on the page, it teaches us what sin is. We humans have a natural revelation about the law, even without the written law as dictated to us by our conscience. But this is somewhat of a vague revelation, which we as sinful humans can convince ourselves to ignore. But we can't ignore the law if it's written on the page, because there it is in black and white. And so in that sense, the written law teaches us unambiguously what sin is. Now the phrase, the law teaches us what sin is, can be stated in another way. The law teaches us what displeases God, or, or you can say, the law teaches us what is wrong in the eyes of God. The word sin applies to wrongdoing in the eyes of God. When you drive 70 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour zone, that's not sin, that's breaking a civil law. That has nothing to do with pleasing or displeasing God. It has to do with keeping order in a civil society. Sin has to do with divine moral law. It has to do with what God deems to be right and wrong. So the law actually teaches us about the character of God because the law instructs us what is right and wrong in the eyes of God. It's teaching us about the character of God and what pleases and displeases God. Now, here in verse 7, Paul chooses an extremely instructive law to prove his point. It's instructive because it's teaching us something special about the character of God, and actually what God wants our character to be like. The law, do not covet, is unique among the Ten Commandments, and, and possibly even unique among all the other laws in the Torah, or, or the Mosaic Law, because it, it pertains to an inner feeling and an inner desire, rather than an external act. This particular law is teaching us something very important about God, and that is that God wants us to not only be pure in our external actions, but also to be pure in our internal thoughts and desires. And Paul's point is 
he wouldn't know that if he didn't have this particular law. From an Old Testament perspective, we wouldn't know that God desires that we be pure in our internal thoughts and desires if the law did not say, do not covet. So that particular law is unique in that it teaches us something special about the character of God and what God desires. It teaches us that God desires that we have a pure heart, that we be pure through and through. I mean, we can go through the Ten Commandments and most of them make sense to us from a natural law point of view, from just our inherent knowledge of right and wrong. Do not steal. Well, well, that makes sense, even if it wasn't written down. Certainly, do not murder makes sense, even if it wasn't written down. Even do not worship false gods. That makes sense. We can reason out that the true and living God would not want us to make a false god. That's something that we would know naturally, I think, even without the written law. But do not covet. That should make us stop in our tracks. It should make us say, wait a second, what's going on here? Coveting is an internal feeling. Why is that wrong? I didn't even act on anything. I didn't even hurt anyone by my coveting. Why is it wrong? So that law is teaching us something about the character of God. He wants us to be internally pure. He wants us not only to cease from stealing from our neighbors, but even to cease from coveting what your neighbor has. So the law here is instructing us. The law instructs us not only about what right and wrong is, but also about the character of God and the desires of God. God's desires about how he wants us to live. Now, the law, do not covet, as I said, is unique in that it pertains to an inner feeling or desire. This particular law is pointing ahead from the Old Testament. It's pointing ahead to the law of Christ as given to us on the Sermon on the Mount. The law of Christ, as taught to us in the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew chapters 5 through, what, 7, um, that pertains to inner thoughts and feelings, not just to external actions. The Old Testament law said, do not murder, but Jesus said, do not even be angry. The Old Testament law said, don't commit adultery, but Jesus said, don't even show lust for someone. These are internal thoughts and feelings, and so we learn from these commandments that Christ and that God the Father desires that we not only be pure on the outside, but also we be pure on the inside as well. That we not only have pure actions, but also pure hearts and pure thoughts. So the law educates. It educates us not only about right and wrong, but also about the character of God and what he desires for us. The second main topic that Paul speaks of in this passage about how the law and sin are related is that Paul talks about how sin increases in the presence of the law. And that sounds a bit strange. Just, just me saying it sounds strange. Let's look at what Paul says in verse 8. Let's read again. Romans 7, verse 8, quote, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from law, sin was dead, unquote. Here, Paul speaks of sin in a literary way as, as an active being, as a person or a force. 
He says that sin is seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, and sin is producing every kind of coveting. This phrase, seizing the opportunity, is actually a military phrase in the original Greek, often used of armies seizing opportunities on the battlefield to establish a base of operations. So here, Paul is picturing sin really as an active army seizing opportunities to induce us into sin. Sin, of course, in itself is not a person or an army, but there are evil forces in the world and there is spiritual warfare occurring. And that, I believe, is what Paul is speaking about here in a rather artistic way. Paul, of course, teaches us about spiritual warfare in other passages, most significantly in Ephesians 6. He speaks about the armor of God that we should use in our spiritual warfare. Here's what he says there. Uh, let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Quote, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand." Unquote. This is a somewhat familiar passage to many of us, but I hope that the familiarity of it doesn't water down the power and the insight of this passage into what's going on in the world. There's an unseen spiritual warfare occurring in the world. There are powers of darkness working in this world. Paul here in Ephesians calls them powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil. Satan is real and active. That's the testimony of the Bible. So back in Romans, when Paul speaks of sin as an active agent, or really as an army even, in this passage, I believe that's what he's talking about. The spiritual forces of evil waging war against us. Those forces are constantly trying to gain a foothold in our lives, to grab territory in our lives, in order to start a base of operations. And in this case, a bit surprisingly, the foothold comes through our knowledge of the law. That's what Paul is saying. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So the spiritual forces are using the commandment in order to induce us to sin. Wow, what does that mean? Paul here is speaking of a psychological phenomenon within, I think, all of us. Our sin nature takes a special pleasure in doing what is forbidden. It's a well-known and well-documented phenomenon that, I think, sadly, is part of the sin nature in all of us. The special pleasure of forbidden fruit. Solomon teaches us about it in the book of Proverbs. Here's what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 17, quote, Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious, unquote. The special pleasure of forbidden fruit. This phenomenon was not only recognized in biblical writings, secular writers also speak of it. 
The, the secular Roman poet Ovid, who, who lived during the reign of Augustus Caesar, so his life actually overlapped with Christ's life on earth, Ovid wrote this, quote, We always endeavor to obtain that which is forbidden and desire that which is denied, unquote. So it's a well-known phenomenon, uh, and Paul is speaking of it here. Paul's knowledge that coveting is a sin actually gave the devil a foothold to produce in him every kind of coveting, as Paul says. Feeding this forbidden fruit phenomenon is the fact that we, in our free will, hate restriction. We have this desire to have full freedom, no matter what the cost. So we rebel against any restrictions placed on us. Here's how Albert Barnes, a theologian known for his great notes on many of the Old and New Testament books, here's how he described this phenomenon. He said, quote, This is the case with regard to sin in every form. An attempt to restrain it by force, to denounce it by laws and penalties, to cross the path of wickedness tends to irritate and to excite into living energy that which would otherwise be dormant in the bosom. Restraint by law rouses the mad passions and makes the sinner stubborn, obstinate, desperate. Anyone may have witnessed this effect, often on the mind of a wicked and obstinate child." Unquote. Part of this phenomenon is what youngsters nowadays call FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. We think that restrictions on our lives cause us to miss out on something, miss out on some valuable experience. And, and this causes a temptation to sin. This is exactly the phenomenon that Paul is speaking of here. Sin sees the opportunity afforded by the commandment and produced in him every kind of covening. The evil one used this phenomenon that we in our free will hate any restrictions. The evil one used this and produced in Paul every kind of covetous desire. We even get the phrase forbidden fruit from, of course, the fall of Adam and Eve. And we see the things that we have been talking about at work back then, back in the Garden of Eden. That, of course, was the first time that the devil took advantage of this desire that humans have of that which is forbidden. And he did so by tempting Adam and Eve in ways that take advantage of this phenomenon that, that beings with free will hate restrictions. Let's look at how sly Satan was in tempting Eve. Here's what Satan said to Eve when she told him that she would die if she ate of the forbidden fruit. He said, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, quote, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, unquote. Satan's taking, uh, directly taking advantage of this fear of missing out attitude that we have. Saying, uh, telling Eve that God made this restriction, made this law, in order to keep her from, quote, knowing good and evil, unquote. So Satan was tempting her by saying something like, hey, you'll be missing out on all this great knowledge that you could have, this knowledge of good and evil. And it worked. What was Eve's response? We find it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, quote, 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it." Unquote. That's a, a perfect example of what Paul talks about back in Romans. Quote, since seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Satan was taking advantage of our natural inclination in our free will to, to hate restrictions. So Satan actually uses the commandment as a source of temptation. And that's what Paul means here back in Romans by saying that, quote, sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment to produce in him every kind of coveting, unquote. Now note this, and note this well, and Paul points this out a number of times in this chapter. There is nothing wrong with the commandment itself. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good, as Paul says a bit later in verse 12. The, the deficiency is not in the law. It's in ourselves. It's in this FOMO attitude, this fear of missing out attitude. It's in this attitude of, oh, I can't miss out on anything, even if it's harmful to me. So when the law says, don't do that, my sinful nature is telling me, oh, I got to find a way to do that, even if it's harmful uh, to me. And how do we battle against this FOMO attitude, this fear of missing out attitude, which is so tempting to us, which actually tempts us to sin? How do we battle against it? Well, I could say a big part of it is, uh, in one word, contentment. That's why contentment is so important. We need to learn to be content with our lives. We need to learn to be content with what God has given us. If we can do that, then this FOMO attitude goes away, and we can better resist temptations of this sort. Paul taught Timothy, and it's so true, Here's what he taught Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 6, quote, But godliness with contentment is great gain, unquote. <laughs> As I said, that's so true. Be content. Enjoy all the great things God has already given you. You're not missing out on anything by keeping God's commandments. You're not missing out on anything by being godly, by, by showing true love for God, by showing true love for others by being Christ-like in all your ways. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all of your endeavors. Amen.